So we've been practicing together for just a little over one day. At least that's how long it's been since most of you arrived. For some a little less time since you got here. And it's enough time to start to settle into the retreat, to start to get a sense of what it's like to be here, start to encounter our experience, ourselves, and this process of engaging with our capacity for attentiveness, our capacity for being present, being awake. And in the, in the process, we may sometimes wonder, you know, or we, we question what, what we're really engaged with, what this is about, what's essential in terms of our orientation here. And there are many ways, of course, we could understand or articulate what is essential, what is fundamental to what we're doing here. And one of the ways, or one of the aspects of that that I'd like to speak about is something we've touched on a little already. The process or the way of seeing and understanding our practice as a, as a process of letting go. And uh, this is something very much central to what meditation practice asks of us. We could see it in many ways as fundamentally coming down to developing that capacity to let go. Of course we might imagine meditation, we might think in terms of meditation as sort of learning techniques, developing certain capacities, being able to uh, produce certain experiences or generate particular outcomes in our inner condition. And there's a, a place for that, a, a value, of course, an importance for that, that process. But more fundamentally, we're concerned with what it means to awaken our lives, what it means to, to know, to discover, to realize freedom in the midst of the complexity and the uncertainty of our human existence. And so we're invited to look a little at how we engage in our life. And of course a retreat is a, a microcosm of our life. What we encounter here, what we see arising in our minds, the way we find ourselves responding, reacting. These are going to be patterns that are not dissimilar to what we might encounter in our lives outside of retreat. And so there's a, there's a question really here that's being asked about what, what are we giving importance to? What are we prioritizing? And it's a, a question, of course, that the Buddha, too, found himself contemplating, found himself questioning, wondering about. And the response that, that came to his questioning, to his wondering, through a really a long journey and exploration, was an understanding in relationship to how it is that we sometimes it seems don't find, don't discover, don't seem to come to the condition of fulfillment, of satisfaction, of happiness that we, that we wish for. He, he pointed to a, a kind of a, a way in which we don't quite see clearly what's happening. We don't really understand, at least upon first, from our first impressions or interpretations, we don't really understand why it is that we, and how it is that we become entangled with our experience, with our world, with our lives, with each other. And he pointed to the possibility of freedom, of a releasing of the human heart, heart and mind, we could say, from suffering, from an entanglement, from a, a condition of being bound by or bound in the contents or bound to the contents of our experience. 
And in this, the attending to or the pointing to, the mechanism and process of how we become attached to experience, how we become entangled in experience as a fundamental cause of suffering, of dissatisfaction, of limitation, of bondage. Seeing that a, a tendency to, it seems, take hold of what's happening to us or within us or around us, to contract, to tighten, to take hold in the form of holding on or equally in the form of pushing away our experience, that this is profoundly painful to us and we can experience that, we can feel and find that for ourselves. And it points to the potential of what letting go can offer. Ultimately, the capacity we have for releasing that often habitual and reactive contraction, holding on. This is really the basis of freedom. This is the basis of the self-empowering, we could say, it's one way we could talk about it, or the self trying to think of a better word than empowering, and I can see I'm not going to think of it right now, so I should probably stop. That sense of, do you ever have that when your mind just sort of looks like it's got a good direction to go, and it thinks, I'll go there, it's going to happen, and then you realize, oh, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's actually an illustration of exactly you know, perhaps what I'm talking about. That We have a sense, oh, this is going to just come together very well, and then, oh, it's not. The word's not there. The thing that we were kind of leaning into isn't there. And so we talk about letting go, we talk about renunciation, the conscious act of putting down, of releasing our engagement or entanglement with phenomena, with experience, with situations. It's not something really popular in our Western world. When we think about that, and I, I think Akenshino might have used the word this morning already once or twice, and... Uh, you know, we so associate it with like deprivation, don't we? It's like, oh, oh. Gosh, that sounds really unpleasant. Or we might have it, we might associate it with a kind of a puritanical rejection of enjoyment, of pleasure, of delight, of, of beauty. And yet, despite those associations we might understandably have with renunciation, correctly understood, it's very much at the heart of and the basis of peace and freedom, of rest and ease. To let go the compulsion of enacting the patterns of our history, of repeating and recycling again and again the responses, the perceptions, and, and reinforcing the identities that we formed, the behaviors and the self-perceptions we formed in response to conditions early on in our life that may have been useful or functional for us, and in fact often were, but no longer serve us. This is what letting go is concerned with. I was having an interesting conversation at lunchtime today. A, a, a few of us were speaking about the... Um, the process that's often rather unhelpful of where we might seek to start to measure and assess how well am I doing in my practice? And uh, Joseph was observing that one of the ways that he, he, he sees that is um, looking at the degree, not in any given situation, but over the, the sweep of time, you know, minimum of five years. Look, is there some noticeable degree of reduction in reactivity? And it's like, that, that's a useful thing to notice. That really, it does make a difference to our life. If we see our reactivity is becoming less. What I noticed for myself arose in response to the question, and I'm not, uh, there's a little bit of a sense, I'm not sure I should even talk about measuring practice because it tends to be something we, we pick up and maybe use in a way that's not skillful to evaluate ourselves. We have such a strong habit and tendency to do that in our culture and almost inevitably 
um, come to some conclusion that's not really helpful. Whether the conclusion is I'm not doing very well or the conclusion is I'm doing better than anybody else. Um, both of those have their limitations as conclusions. Maybe that's obvious. But um, when I was thinking about it, I thought actually one of the fundamental ways we can see the fruit of our practice is in the developing or the deepening capacity we have to let go. How fully and deeply we're able to let go in the places we notice ourselves holding on, in the places we notice ourselves resisting or clinging. And so when we, when we look at practice in, in terms of that, we're seeing that there's certain patterns and tendencies that we're practicing to let go of our entanglement in, our becoming lost in, our repeating and recycling. And to a large extent, they're driven by the, we could say, the materialistic orientation that we become entangled in or that we become enamored of that's very much around us and, and, and reinforced in so many ways that tends to suggest to us that happiness will come, fulfillment will come, satisfaction will come through some kind of accumulation or control of experience, of and the, the most obvious level at this, which we see, you know, getting things, having things, more things, it's, I mean, it's just going on all around us. If we look into any form of media, the, the amount of enthusiasm for having more things at this time of year and more things that might actually be at a reduced price are even better. I, I, I have to admit, I feel the thrill and the possibility myself too. It's like I can have more things that cost less, which means then you can have even more things. The, the Christmas and Boxing Day sales and New Year's sales and the sales just before them and the sales, sales just after them. Have you noticed? There's almost always one of them going on and it's always so exciting. <laughs> I suspect that the fact that you're here means that you're not quite so convinced by that particular argument because there's not a lot on offer here. What's for sale in the, um, the Yogi Needs closet isn't that exciting and they never do discounts. Have you seen Oh, actually, no, that's not entirely true. If you go on staff, you do get a discount. I shouldn't, it's, you know, maybe that's, a, that's an encouragement to take up employment at IMS. I don't know. But at a deeper level, and we see this as we enter into a retreat situation, rather than seeking fulfillment through the materialism of possessions, of things, it's through having experiences we start to imagine and believe that if I have the right experiences and I avoid the having the wrong experiences, that will somehow be the basis of my fulfillment, my completion, my happiness. And we can notice ourselves kind of measuring and evaluating our experience, our meditation experience, our life experience, on the basis of how fully it satisfies or completes us in some way. And what we see in that, of course, is that experiences, even inner experiences, don't really do that for us. If you haven't come to that conclusion yet, this could, of course, be a little disappointing to have it suggested. And you might think, well, what on earth am I doing here then? But uh, we'll get to that. The third level of materialism is perhaps most fundamental and important to understand, the sense that the process of becoming someone other than or different than that who or what I am, that somehow in that process I will find fulfillment, completion and lasting happiness. And this one we can see falls very much into the realm of what a lot of spiritual endeavor is often engaged with. The interesting effect of any of those forms, and interesting is perhaps a polite way of putting it, the effect of any of those forms of materialism is that our experiences start to arise for us having the, the quality of either being an obstacle or a solution. So the, 
the particular things I've got are either the solution to my problems or they're my problem at the material level. That tends to be it. Have you noticed the industry of having more things has now produced another industry of storing the things that you have? I don't know if that's happening here in this country because your houses are a bit bigger than in England, generally. Um, not saying that's your individual houses, but it seems to be the case when I walk into houses anyway. But the houses are full of things, and so people are having to get storage spaces to pay money to keep all the things. And you see, oh, these things that were a solution, because you really need one of those things and one of those, well, they start to become a problem. With experiences, when we're looking to and we're referring to what's happening for us and saying this one might be a solution this one might be the solution if I can just get my mind to be calm and clear that'll be the solution this is a common thought for meditators but then of course the fact that when my mind isn't calm and clear that's the mind becomes a problem and we start to relate to our experience in those terms does it fulfill me or does it not does it give me something or does it not and in terms of becoming someone, again, the very sense of who and what we are becomes something we have this complicated and painful relationship of hope and fear around trying to be that which I feel will be good, okay, fulfilling, appreciated, and at the same time fearing that that is not what I am or will be. And all of those processes, any of which, of course, could be just by itself the subject of a, not just even one talk, but many. It's like this way we're engaged with experience from the point of view of what can it give me, what can I get from it, or more subtly, can I use it? How can I use it to form a sense or a view of myself that I feel happy or comfortable with? And so far as this is our familiar or primary or habitual way of engaging with experience and with life, and of course it's, it's common, it's familiar, it's easy that that be the case, so far as that be what underpins much of our endeavor and, and engagement, it's, it's, it's fundamentally unsatisfying. It's actually quite tragically painful. And again, I'm not saying this because I think it's news to you. I can't imagine that you might come along to a retreat or if you had come along that you'd have stayed beyond the opening talk if you didn't have some sense of that. It's so hard for us when we're looking for something from experience for it to give us that. I often find myself reflecting on something that happened for me when I was on a retreat. It's quite a long time ago now, but I think the experience is somehow like seared into my consciousness. Um, and I probably have told some of you the story before, so bear with me if that's the case. But once when I was on a retreat at the retreat centre in Devon, near where Catherine and I live and where we teach quite regularly, Lasagna was served at lunchtime. And I'm rather enthusiastic about that particular um, meal. And I, there was a sign beside the, the dish, the dishes, saying, moderation, you know, there's a whole lot of people need to eat out of this dish. So I remember very consciously taking the largest possible piece that could still be considered moderate <laughs> and taking it back to my place and sitting down to eat it and there's a sense of oh this whole this is going to be so good this is going to be so good this is going to be so good wow I was so happy for about three seconds and then as soon as I tasted it and it was that good it really was that good I started to think I'm going to need seconds I need more this won't be enough but I don't know if there'll be enough if there'll be any left and so I started accelerating in the eating and shoveling this food into my mouth, and all the time getting more and more anxious about whether there will be more in order to fulfill my need to have lots of this particular 
thing. Of course, forgetting that each mouthful tasted pretty much the same as the previous one. And so I actually got quite stressed in the process. And having rushed through the eating of the food, having not enjoyed it at all, I discovered that I was already stuffed. I was full. I didn't want any more. And I hadn't enjoyed what I'd eaten. And there's something really, for me, quite poignant about that experience, that sense of how the very pressure we put upon something to fulfill me in some way, to give me more than it can, means I can't actually even receive the simple enjoyment it could have offered me in that situation, which is the possibility of a a pleasant-tasting lunch. I failed to have that in that situation. And so often we, we put this weight upon our experience, asking it to give us something it can't. And when we don't get from it what we wish, when it doesn't give us that that we're looking for, the assumption is, I must have done something wrong. Maybe I need to get more of this or, or do it more enthusiastically or intensively or competently, if we're talking about meditation, and then it will give me that. But experience isn't set up to do that for us. And that very orientation that's always looking for more, that's always looking for something else, that's always looking to get to another place or get ourselves into some different shape, keeps us off balance, keeps us leaning forward or backward, not able to actually land, not actually able to settle deeply into where we are and start to receive what that condition can offer us. You know, Jack Cornfield, who's, you know, as probably many of you know, one of the uh, sort of elders of our tradition and uh, much loved teacher of insight meditation and, and the Buddha Dharma. He once observed in a retreat such as this, he said, you know, people come on a retreat and they think it's like going to the store. You're going to get all these great things, but it's not. Coming on a retreat is like going to the dump. (laughs) This is where we go to let go of the stuff we no longer need, to get rid of the trash. That's the word you use here, isn't it? Trash. Sorry, I'm just checking. Yeah. Trash is a little bit harsh, really, isn't it? It does does sound a little judgmental or rejective with regard to what we might want to let go of. So I I don't know if that's exactly the right word to use. But what is important to, to recognize is that the mechanisms that we employ, most of which are unconscious and habitual, need to be seen. We need to actually start to see them. And there's a, there's a kind of a dual process or a parallel process that happens as we engage in the meditation. We're both cultivating and developing very consciously and intently the capacity to gather and to focus and to sustain the attention in the immediacy of our experience and with a chosen field or object of that experience in the simple turning towards, coming back to, and engaging with the directly felt somatic experience, the body. And that doing this is something actually really helpful for us, something really important, this cultivation. But at the same time as we're doing this, we can't help but also be engaged with the process that makes it difficult for us to do that. And what makes it difficult or challenging for us to simply gather? I mean, it does sound, doesn't it, rather quite simple. And I think, you know, it was mentioned earlier, if someone tells you that meditation is easy, that's not quite true. And it isn't true. You've probably already spotted that if you hadn't before you got here. But what fools us is that it is quite simple. So it looks like it should be easy. Yeah, just pay attention. Just be present. Be awake. Don't have to make anything happen, don't have to do anything. But actually doing that is not easy because of the tendency we have to go looking for something that's going to give me what I think I want or need. And the belief that things 
can do that for me is one of the deeply rooted misunderstandings that we have to attend to in the process of the practice. And the, the way we attach, or we take hold of, we contract and tighten around our idea of what will do it for me or our idea of what will prevent me getting what I'm needing, where something becomes the solution or the obstacle. This we talk of as attachment. It's this kind of a contraction that we can notice and part of the value and importance of being in the body and using the body as we feel the physiological expression of that contraction and we can start to work with that directly. But it's also important for us to distinguish attachment in this form, in this usage, from the way that word and language is used in the, in the, in the realm of psycholog Western psychological understanding, where attachment is expressing the very important and essential human capacity for connection, for bonding and for relationship, and as a part of one's early developmental process, is essential for health and well-being. That which is an unskillful or harmful attachment reveals itself not as a connecting or a, or a bondedness in a, in a supportive or a wholesome way with the object, which classically in, in sort of developmental terms is the, uh, the, the, the mothering or parenting figure one is closest to. But what it expresses itself is, is a form of pressure upon our experience, upon the world, upon ourself, to conform to our desires, our preferences, our fantasies. And it, it, it's actually something we can feel. It is a pressure. And the interesting thing about it is the pressure works differently than what we imagine in our unconscious engaging in that pressure, than how we imagine. And a way I can illustrate this is um, some years ago, Catherine and I, we were doing a retreat in France in the Pyrenees in a cabin. And we'd gone there in June when it was sunny and should be reliably warm, escaping from England where it's not generally reliably warm or sunny. And uh, it rained quite a lot on this particular retreat. We were there for a few weeks. And at one point I found myself standing outside the cabin and I realized when I was just checking in, so what's happened, what's going on? I realized that I was, I was tensing with the sense of it shouldn't be raining, it should stop raining. And it's like I was actually trying to get the rain to stop by tightening my body, as if I could somehow exert pressure upon it. But the obvious discovery in that moment of realization was it was not putting any pressure on the rain, was it? We know that that's not going to, but it was putting a lot of pressure on me. And actually, the noticing, oh, actually, I maybe need to let go of the idea that it's going to be sunny this month. Or that this rain shouldn't be happening. Because it is. So much of our experience, when we have the idea of what it should or shouldn't be, we react to it being other than that by tightening, by contracting. And noticing this, this is part of when we come into our body, we notice, oh, can I allow that to begin to soften? Can I allow that to begin to relax? And that actually enables us to settle more fully in, more deeply in to this body. For this body to become a place where we can rest more deeply. And this requires us to to see the way we subscribe, so far as we do, and if you don't, that's fine. Um, I'm wonderful, in fact, more than fine. If you don't find yourself subscribing to this, but this, this idea that happiness comes, or fulfillment comes through controlling and manipulating our experience, our outer experience, or our inner experience. Essentially, the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of the difficult. Although they have their, their place, and it's not that you know one has to somehow negate the value and the importance of pleasure, or seek out more difficulty in order to advance one's practice. Sometimes we have really quite enough already. We don't need to go looking for more. But in and of themselves, that pursuit of pleasure, the avoidance of the difficult, they're not effective strategies for real fulfillment, for deep satisfaction.
And this is really the, the essence of you know, what the Buddha spoke of as the first noble truth. That he pointed to this, this truth of, of the suffering that we encounter in life or the tendency, the propensity for a sense of dissatisfaction to arise. The interesting thing about this is that seeing that experiences in and of themselves do not, do not have the capacity to give us fulfillment or satisfaction, to see also that the, the corollary or the implication of that is they also in and of themselves do not have the capacity to obstruct our fulfillment or our satisfaction. And I think this is really important because this isn't always necessarily how we hear or understand that teaching. That things cannot do it for us, but nor can they stop it or obstruct it for us. Not in and of themselves. And so the foundation, or one of the foundations of what we're doing, of what we're engaging in here, is expressing or aligning ourselves with that understanding that recognizes that the control and manipulation of experience, even if we're not convinced in ourselves yet, but the form and the practice and the frameworks we're using are, are arising from this understanding. That the satisfaction, the fulfillment, the happiness we seek is only available in the immediacy of our experience and in the way we open to and encounter, inhabit and understand it directly. To be awake in the living present. And so there's a process of training that we undertake, that we engage in. A training of this heart and mind to be here. To come back again and again to what is right now. To let go of our images and ideas of what could be or what should be. And to really trust where we find ourselves. To trust what's happening. And I often speak about the, the process of this as like training a puppy that has to learn what it means to stay steady and to follow skillful guidance. And I, in the last few months, have had real delight of a, a kind of a new friendship with someone I've known for many, many years. But we both recently, well, it was a few, it was sort of six or eight months ago, we were having a conversation where we discovered we were both just lacking someone else who liked going for long walks out in the wilderness and didn't really care if the weather was bad. And, um, of course, liking nice weather, but we sort of said, oh, let's go for some walks together. Great. And um, we've been on a, a number of them. It's, it's been a real delight. But what I didn't realize was going to be part of it was that he had a puppy. <laughs> and so we're out walking in the, 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 the local sort of, we could say, relative wilderness of the Dartmoor National Park near where we live. And this dog, he was training as we were going for the walks. It was very interesting to see how the dog would run off. And sometimes, you know, you'd wish that it didn't run off. But the, the training and the practice was very clear. Call it back. Get it back. Sometimes it takes a while. I'd be like, oh, this is hard work. But when it comes back, it's never bad dog. You ran away or you went and chased a sheep, which you shouldn't have done. And actually... Of course, it's not the dog's fault. That should have been, if the owner should have had him on a leash at this point. So that would be the real issue there. But it happens once or twice. But always, once he comes back, it's like he gets a little treat. And so my friend Bill's got this little bag of doggy treats. And every time Jago comes back, he gives him a treat. He gives him a treat. And it was really interesting, you know. What would it be like for us if every time we came back, rather than, oh my gosh, I've blown it. I've been, you know, chasing the sheep. Or I've been, you know, running through in my mind the lists of all the things I should have done or need to do. Or I've been, 
you know, you can fill in the blanks. And we so easily kind of come down on ourselves harshly in that situation. What would it be to just every time we notice we've landed, we've reconnected, we've come back, to just offer a brief moment of appreciation to ourselves? Oh, look, you're back. Here you are. How wonderful. How amazing. I mean, the miraculousness of the fact that we become awake again when we could stay asleep all day. And people do. It's like the light comes back on and suddenly, oh, we're here. To really honor that, to appreciate that. And what's interesting, of course, is that, you know, when we see Jago, the dog, coming back, it's because he knows he's getting a treat. That's why he's coming back. Somehow in our mind, if we receive it with kindness when we become awake again, it actually calls us back more easily, more naturally, more usefully. And to see how we may find ourselves sort of getting caught up in strategies for how we can stop the mind. The thinking mind, before we engage in meditation, it's like we can often imagine that the thinking mind is going to be the solution to our lives. That's what a lot of the world seems to imagine, and perhaps we can see there's some limitations in that view. But in the meditation world, of course, often the idea, it seems rather unfortunately, arises that the the thinking mind is now the problem. Having been the solution, it becomes the problem. If the thinking mind was the problem, we could have an operation and the problem will be solved. But we're not here for a spiritual lobotomy. It's not what we're interested in. So we're not reflecting on or examining too much the thinking mind at this point in the retreat process. But as we settle and as our capacity to be conscious and embodied in a deeper and more sustained way. As that develops, then the mind becomes very much a topic of interest, but equally a vehicle and a tool in our process of exploration and discovery. So, for now, the invitation to just keep letting go, keep stepping back, keep putting down Whatever it is we find arising and engaging our mind's attention. Whatever that seems to offer us the possibility that if you just go a little further down in this direction, it's going to be good. Do you notice how it's got that sort of feeling to it? Oh, if I just go a little further, then it's like a train that stops at our station. And we think, oh, I'll go for a ride. It looks like it's going somewhere good. And of course, at some point, the bridge has been washed out, then it's a train wreck. And we go, oh, why did I do that? Why did I do that? It's like the promise that it offers us. We haven't quite seen it yet. And so we come back, we come back, we begin again and again. This process of letting go is very much an act of compassion to ourselves. It's not a deprivation. It's an act of compassion to ourselves and ultimately to our world equally. We don't have to make something happen. We don't have to make ourselves into something that we're not. We don't even actually have to develop kindness or concentration or even wisdom. We simply need to let go of the patterns and the habits and the tendencies of mind that obscure their very natural character. in our heart and mind. There is a fundamental element of caring and intelligence. 
Of course, that's not always what's playing out. And that intelligence needs discernment in order to become wisdom. It needs exploration and understanding to grow into its fullness, just as our caring doesn't in itself have its full potential. But the fundamentals are inherent to what it is that we are as human beings. And it's the patterns and the mechanisms and the tendencies of mind that have become overlaid, that have become established and reinforced, that we engage with in the very process that the meditative form and the retreat form bring us into contact with in order for us to begin to see them and to release ourselves from them by putting them down. We don't have to push them away. This is really important. We don't have to push away the patterns of reactivity. We don't have to judge them or reject them or ourselves for the fact that we experience them. That's really not helpful or useful. And it's actually just ineffective as well. To let go ultimately brings us a sense of ease and well-being and in fact joy because there's a releasing of the patterns and structures of contraction that are the fundamental suffering. The both physical and we could say mental or psychic structures that we actually are held in and by and that we unconsciously repeat but do not have to continue to reinforce by themselves begin to slowly deconstruct when we're no longer repeating them. And the practice, and it's simple, and it's not easy, but it is remarkably powerful, the practice of noticing, oh, this is where I am, and consciously disengaging and bringing the attention back, turning again towards, coming into contact with the bodily experience the felt immediacy of our life as it breathes, as it pulses, as it sits right here, just as it does. As I said, there's something miraculous that happens in the moment when we become conscious again, having been unconscious. I don't know if you've thought about this much. Actually, I'm not encouraging you to think about it too much. But, you know, by definition, we don't do that. Because when we're unconscious, we're not there. We don't even know we're unconscious. And yet something remarkable happens born out of the intention to be present, to be awake. That in that very unconscious lost place, somehow, I used to be able to do that, the light comes back on. How does it do that? How does it happen that this human being in the condition of lostness, of unconsciousness, suddenly becomes conscious and awake again? It doesn't ultimately matter in the process how long you may have been unconscious or how often you need to do this. The trajectory is clear. Simply notice where you are. In that moment you're already present. Come back. Reconnect. As we do this we find naturally the capacity deepens and grows. And we see that the quality of being present is in fact natural to us. It's our natural habitat. We start to enjoy it. And even today there may have been, I imagine for, 
I won't say all of you because I don't know, but I'm going to guess most of you, moments where you did, despite the busyness and franticness and the reactivities and the sleepiness and the discomfort and all of that that might also be going on, that there may also have been moments where you really did land, where you felt your foot touch the ground and knew that was what was happening. Well, there was just a moment where there wasn't anything other that was calling you than just the simplicity of your felt experience in the body. And there's just a moment of settling in which we feel something qualitatively different. Not because the experience itself is something particularly unusual or exciting or delicious, though it can be, but because the the wholeheartedness, the fullness of inhabiting where you are has revealed itself as possible and as happening. And in that, 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 that fullness of presence, that, that being here-ness, it speaks to us quite directly of something that is both fresh and yet recognizable to us, that's both new Always, because this moment can only be fresh and new. But it's also something we know. But we don't recognize it from our past experience, from our memory, from our story, from our history. We recognize it from something different. And that recognizing of what is immediate and true shows us or tells us something important. So see if you can be really interested. If you can give yourself wholeheartedly to this process that we're engaged in. To notice the urge and the pattern of looking for something else, of trying to get somewhere else, trying to have something else, trying to become someone else. All of that. We don't need to do too much with it at this stage. Just simply disentangle. Be willing to let it go and see what happens when we do This, ability, this, this capacity to notice what's happening, to let it go, which means allow it to be as it is, to not try and keep hold, not try and push away any particular experience. This is the basis of freedom, that we have this capacity that we can release the unconscious and habitual compulsions that take hold of and that push away. And that as we begin to do so, there's a natural and an organic settling more deeply into a a gathering together, a cohering, a unifying of this heart-mind-body process that is alive, that is awake, and that is available. And when we're not looking for something other than what's here, when we're not trying to get to some other place, when we're not entangled in the process of trying to become someone other, or something other than what we are. Our life reveals itself to us. The heart of our life, just as it is. And it's simple and ordinary. And at the same time it's luminous, mysterious, dynamic and peaceful at the same time. And fundamentally unbound.
Ajahn Chah, who was a much-loved, deeply respected teacher in Thailand in the 20th century. He said, Let go a little and you will know a little peace. Let go a lot and you will know a lot of peace. Let go completely and you will know complete peace and natural freedom. This is our practice. So let's sit quietly together for a few moments. And so may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we grow in our capacity for releasing. May we see and know the benefits that it brings. And may we come to rest in the truth of our lives just as they are. for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.